Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Today, I have Dr. Sarah Falah with me. And she is a new fast friend. I met her recently in Denver at a financial planning conference. And to be honest, I had been stalking her for a little while on LinkedIn. She is a fellow money nerd, data scientist, and just an incredible person. We had a wonderful conversation in Denver at this financial planning conference. And I said, Sarah, would you be willing to come on my podcast? And she was kind enough to say, yes, I will. Sarah has an incredible backstory to how she got to the work that she's doing. And so we're going to open that up, but we're also going to talk about her work with data and finance and behaviors. So buckle up. Here we go. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Sarah, you started your own company called Data Points, and you have assessments that help financial planners understand what their clients are doing and not doing with money, how they think about money or don't think about it, how they feel about money or don't feel, what behaviors. Is that, am I catching the drift? Yeah, absolutely. It's everything from attitudes about money to, you know, investing personality. So we really try to cover the waterfront in terms of measuring characteristics and then giving those insights back to the advisor and to the client. All right. So when you were a little girl, were you dreaming of doing this type of work or did you stump, go through life and kind of get introduced to this? What? How did you get to this? This is what I do for my living. Oh, wow. Yeah. So no, I don't think I ever dreamed um, of running a fintech company. Um, you know, that was not my, my life's ambition. Um, I did like video games. I played like the Atari and Zelda, if anybody remembers that <laughs> on the Nintendo, right? Oh yeah, yeah. the gold, the gold cartridge. Y'all remember that. So Oh yes. Of course yes. the gold cartridge. How could we forget yeah, the gold cartridge? Absolutely. So I certainly liked technology and things like that. But um, you know, I grew up in uh, a family that had an entrepreneur. So my my dad was um first a marketing professor and a researcher and consultant and then you know, kind of went out on his own. And um, so I was around survey research and trying to understand people really my whole life. Um, you know, he was a little bit, you know, he was certainly focused on marketing. And so I went in a little bit of a different direction on the psychology side, but, you know, definitely had that background and, you know, also ran lemonade stands and sold Girl Scout cookies. So I definitely, I wouldn't say I was the best at sales. I still wouldn't say that, but, um, you know, definitely had that business side to me. But were you tracking your sales? No. Closely? No, it was like... No, not at that point. No, and it was like, say, you know, sharing it with friends, right? So it wasn't like I kept it, which, you know, my husband will tell you today. That's probably still what I would be doing. But um, yes, yes, was not tracking. <laughs> oriented towards sharing, though, even some of the money that you're making. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. 
It's yeah. interesting because just kind of thinking about we're, before we got recording, right? We we're talking about being business owners mm. and sharing our knowledge and that kind of friendly collaborative experience versus learning how to be a little more shrewd even. And, and that's really kind of, in my book, I mean, part of this challenge with money and relationships, right, is that who do we trust? How much do we trust? How do we navigate these relationships with each other? And all the psychological dance we kind of go through with all that, right? Yeah, it's like the same kind of concepts of putting up boundaries and friendships come into play in putting up boundaries within a business relationship. And so I think I definitely had to learn over the last you know, five to six years the hard way to, you know, recognize when it's appropriate to be friendly and helpful. Um, you know, certainly even if you're saying no, you can do that with a smile on your face. But, and then also opportunities where what's, what's really hard is opportunities where there could be, you know, an upside, but you have to share more information than maybe you're willing to do, you know, do so at the time. So that can be really hard. Yep. That is really hard. It, yeah, I mean, and I feel like I'm still continuing to figure this this dance out because there's not like a nifty little rule book that says how to navigate all these things, at least not one that I've come across yet. Yeah, absolutely not. And I think, you know, if you go back to, um, you know, Robert Cialdini's like influence, right? And, and people do things for you. So then you feel obligated to do things for them. And, you know, all of those things come into play. And yeah, there's no kind of, like you said, rules of thumb of, well, how often, how often should I, you know, <laughs> give them a free whatever it might be? Or how often should I, you know, meet with them and give them free consulting before it becomes, you know, almost a burden and you're not, you know, you're not making any money from that. So it, it is hard. Money and human dynamics is just mm. gets so complicated quickly. I guess that's why we have jobs though too, isn't <laughs> that's it? That's right. That's right. Keeps us employed. <laughs> Keeps us employed. Right. Tries to give us clarity, but it's, you know, it is that kind of, I mean, what's the phrase quid pro quo or, mm. and all like, and why there's in certain places, like you can't accept gifts because of the mm. influence that that starts to give. And, you know, Obviously, most of my work is with couples and money and influence and and what's going on there. So, you know, but money dynamics are the world writ large. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Whether it's in, in the intimate relationship, in the family relationship, or more in the community dash business world. Yeah. Part of how I came into this world was through the lens of organizations and, you know, individuals that were trying to apply for a job, but maybe didn't have the right characteristics or the skills and things like that, but yet they need that income. So that was part of it, um, as well as sort of studying organizations and dynamics and how are you incentivizing the sales team and, you know, what kind of options and benefits are you giving to employees? Is that keeping them there? So there's, it goes, it's everywhere, you know, definitely. Right. You know, I'm thinking about I don't want to say a partner's compensation structure mm. and then what that means to their intimate partner and how the intimate partner mm. interprets that. And, you know, I work with a lot of highly compensated professionals where they have stock options and stock grants mm -hmm. and, and it feels like little mini financial windfalls every year mm. or whenever the granting period is. And then they start to live in anticipation of it. And so like the way the corporate policies set up the distributions probably has some impact. I'm mm -hmm. naive to, but it's keeping them there. Yep. It's keeping, very much keeping there, and by intention and design oftentimes. Mm -hmm. 
because the employer has a need for stability and high quality um, employees to provide the services that they render. So, I mean, in that way, it's a system, the economic system, and it's complex and multifaceted and dynamic. And you got into kind of organizational behavior, organizational psychology. Is that yeah? Is that right? So I, I started in the on the sort of partner to organizational psychology, which is industrial psychology, which is more of the uh-huh. let's measure things about people, let's measure things about the jobs that they do, and let's try to find sort of a match there. Um, looking at a lot of, you know, can I actually predict who will be a, a good, great at sales? Or can I understand from someone's personality which employee would be likely to leave, right, to turn over, um, and let's maybe not hire those folks, right, um, that kind of thing. And so that was my start in the field of psychology was in on the industrial side, measuring characteristics about individuals, um, and then began to look at my father's work, which he had done survey research for years and years and years, looking at how people accumulate wealth. And so, you know, my sort of big idea, so to speak, or maybe it's a small idea since nobody knows about it yet. Um, It's still sort of a secret, but (laughs) is that managing your financial life is essentially a job that all of us have to do. Very few of us are trained to do it. We have very little knowledge of of what it takes to succeed in that job, but yet we, if we don't do it well, we won't succeed. So it acts like a job that all of us have to, to do. And that's in addition to all the emotional side of, of that job. But, but now I'm just strictly talking about the basics, right? You know, just the functional practical correct. side of things. And so that became one of the first tests that we created was based on the millionaire next door. It was, you know, looking at what are the, just the basic competencies of managing your financial life. And if we can start with that, then we can move to some of these advanced things like investing characteristics and those kinds of things. But let's just make sure, especially if you're working with someone that is you know, new to financial planning or, you know, maybe just receive some kind of windfall. Do they have the skills to do this job? And again, it's a job that we all have, but few of us are trained in that job. Yeah. You know, and I think the old school term would be home economics. Right. right. right? I think it's, it's probably evolved from there, but it's, you know, the field of financial literacy, I think kind of tries to solve some Mm. of this problem Mm -hmm. of like, we know that there's a common core of knowledge that people need to function in their financial life at no matter the level of income, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? There's core concepts that no matter whether you're living at the bottom of the economic ladder or at the top, there's foundational financial concepts. And if you don't have those, you lack basic financial literacy and you're prone to having more mistakes. And the, the problem it seems to be from my perspective, I'm curious about yours is, when people make money mistakes, that's not a neutral event. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it often leads them in a place of shame and embarrassment and remorse and guilt. And yet they don't know better. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. they haven't been taught the language. And we all spent how many years learning how to read and write? Right. <laughs> like it, it's a reading and writing is a complex process. Right. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like right. Managing money is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, that was part of the, I guess the early research that we did was to actually look at the complexity of managing your financial life. So 
to your point, it's very complex. It includes everything from, you know, again, when you think about it from a competency perspective, everything from planning and monitoring what's happening to relationships with others and how you're communicating, you know, a budget or your expectations. And I think where, you know, you mentioned financial literacy, I think, you know, again, there's some, I guess, controversy over whether, you know, literacy can predict success, right? So if we increase literacy, are we actually increasing financial success? And I think that's where this understanding of our competencies and our personality comes into play because I can know these things. I can know that I should follow a budget. I can know that I shouldn't, you know, pay attention to the news when the markets are dropping. Like I can, I know that, but do I actually do it? And so that's where I think, you know, the coaching and the experience comes into play or, you know, again, working with someone that can help you comes into play is, we know what to do. Now are we going to actually do it? And so that's a struggle as well. Well, and that's the gap. It seems that the diet, eating, physical health side of the world has been contending with for a long time and knows and talks about. And I feel like the world of financial services is just kind of coming into this conversation. Mm-hmm. But it's a parallel problems. Right. Absolutely. Right? Like our foundational knowledge of how to to nourish our bodies and manage that process is actually more complex than people realize. Mm -hmm. And yet, if it was just as easy as knowing what to do, then we would all do it. We'd all be healthy. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many moving pieces. So for those that are listening that don't know about survey research and understand how it works, Mm -hmm. can you give a layman's explanation of what survey research is? And how it helps us predict mm. likely outcomes because it's something that I probably really honestly didn't understand until I got into my PhD program how that kind of stuff could work. Now, I had an MBA. I had my licensed marriage and family therapist. Like, I'm pretty highly educated and I still hadn't really wrapped my head around just how significant. And a little personal anecdote, I honestly made this connection last night and I'm a little embarrassed don't it but my my son had his middle school buddies over and uh one of the kids was talking about what they're learning in math what are they learning in seventh grade math how to calculate the slope of a line Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right i think it's y equals mx plus b yeah yeah if we can go way back (laughs) i don't know if the reality is like yeah that far back but but like yeah that's the starting of i think what you actually end up doing in data analytics right Right is being able to predict where data is going to fall on a on a chart. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Survey research can tell you kind of what's happening right now with um, uh-huh. a group of people, let's say, or even an individual if they're responding, you know, one on one. But mm-hmm. um, where that that prediction side comes in, right? Where you're talking about, you know, regression and and correlation and things like that is when you are validating or looking at the relationship, the statistical relationship between something like, let's say, someone's emotion and Mm -hmm. a financial outcome, right? So if I can correlate those things or if I can show statistically that controlling for everything else, there's a relationship between an individual's score, let's say, on a test that measures emotion and what they're going to do when the markets drop. 
then we are better able to anticipate what our clients might do or even ourselves, right? So if I can, I, you know, I know about myself that I tend to be more fearful and anxious and worried than others. That's just, I know that about myself after taking, you know, too many personality tests and just living my life for a long time. But because I know that about myself, then I can, I, I know what I'm going to do when, you know, great example, yesterday, securing Taylor Swift tickets for my teenage daughters because they were at school. It was like uh-huh. the most stressful thing I've ever done. And I've had three children and I've defended a dissertation. Like I, it, it was terrible, <laughs> but I had to, t- you know, I knew that I was walking into that situation and I had to, you know, tell myself, all right, patience, Ticketmaster is not out to get you. And we're, we're going to, you know, get this done. But anyhow, you know, that's something that you can know about yourself and through research and psychology, as you know, they've shown these relationships over and over and over again. So people that have very high conscientiousness tend to be really great at um, admin roles and, and jobs in general. We know for, again, for people that are very planful and they monitor how their finances are doing, they tend to have a higher net worth than others. So we can predict these things using analytics and using, you know, personality type assessments. And so that's kind of the, where that all kind of comes together, if you will. Well, I think this is really helpful for the non-science, non-data nerds that are listening. And maybe even a reminder for those that are more science and data driven is we're using that to, in another space. So if you use it for one area, your job, I don't, I can't even think of something, some area of other science and research that those same principles apply in the personal finance. Mm-hmm. We can actually know and understand people using mathematical models right. to get high probability of this is going to be the outcome. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in psychology and therapy world, especially, right, there's so much research around adverse childhood experiences mm-hmm. and, the, and the correlations between increased number of adverse childhood experiences, higher probability of, uh, both mental and physical health adverse mm-hmm. outcomes. I I haven't seen a lot of research yet on adverse financial outcomes, but I would imagine yeah, I would the logic it. would follow. But you you had early exposure to survey research with your dad, uh, Dr. Stanley, who wrote the book The Millionaire Next Door, and that was one of the books that I read early in my personal finance journey. And I shared this with you when we met in Denver. And you've really been able to take his work and make it your own, which is so cool. You know, to some extent, right? So he, um, we, we've tried to be very true to the mantra of, you know, how can we understand things about clients or ourselves that would, again, predict who could be the millionaire next door. But at the same time, just like with your example of early childhood trauma, we're trying to measure things that people can do something about, right? So what we know is, Mm. yeah, so what we know, for example, in our early research that I did um, in conjunction with him before he passed away was we knew um, maternal career support, like early on. So like if you had a typically it was a mother that was talking about careers that was encouraging you, your net worth would be higher. Well, I can't control for that. So if I'm in the context of a financial coaching or financial, even financial planning situation, I might want to know that, 
but I can't do anything about it. So what we tried to do was really narrow down to, to competencies or characteristics that could then be, you know, how could I coach you to be more frugal? Or how could I coach you to maybe care a little less about what your neighbors are driving and buying and wearing? Um, and so that's kind of where that came into play um, and how it overlaps with what my father did because he studied a whole host of things about wealth accumulation like you said, some of which you can't do anything about. Well, I guess this is um, part of the psychology, right? Is like nature versus nurture is the way that mm -hmm. I think a lot of people understand it in kind of everyday terms is, well, this is just the way I am. And sometimes we misunderstand that some of our psychological boots are actually not just the way you are, but are actually more developed and part of your lived experience. And are changeable to varying degrees, right? right? Like for me, you know, one of those major psychological attributes that I'm looking through is attachment styles mm -hmm. and what's your attachment style, which does play into maternal and paternal caregiving. Mm -hmm. And the research is very clear that if you had a felt sense of being cared for and loved and safe in your childhood by a primary caregiver, your long-term life trajectory of health and relationship satisfaction is much higher. Mm -hmm. If you had both parents that left you feeling that way, even better. But it, just one makes a big difference. If you had neither parent where you felt loved, cared for, or safe, it's, it's just devastating. Yep. Um, and, and the therapeutic journey to heal those attachment wounds and bonds is a long one. There's no quick interventions for that, right. unfortunately. And so that's part of this, I guess, what we're, as researchers in that mindset, where we're also looking for what are those interventions that we can do relatively shortly and get a pretty good bang for our mm -hmm. buck on a fact, right? And I imagine that's where a lot of your expertise lays is because you're not thinking in terms of like, well, if we put this person through five years of therapy, then they'll be able to do this. Right, right. Well, I'm guessing, yeah. right? That's what I think. Like, right. Yeah. Well, and the assessments themselves were geared towards, you know, a non-clinical audience. So we're not, and I don't know if we, we had this conversation in Denver or not, but there there is, you know, a fine line that, again, so I'm talking about financial planners here, have to walk, right? They right. can't, you know, just because their client discloses to them some kind of financial trauma or something like that, it doesn't automatically trigger, you know, okay, now I'm putting my therapy hat on. That could be a situation where they need to refer that client out, you know? And so we are trying to focus, like I said, on non-clinical components also that lend themselves to coaching. So, Again, if you are working with a client that um, maybe can't focus on the details of finances, what are some key habits they can put in place that will help them? Like, okay, I'm going to put in place reminders and I'm going to set aside, you know, just 10 minutes a day to focus on these three things, that kind of thing versus, again, like you said, you know, five years of therapy plus, you know, ongoing interventions, that kind of thing. Well, that I think that's such the interesting challenge too, right? Is uh, the clinical threshold for some of those like attention to detail, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and, and there's a general, I don't know, how do I say this? Within the human population, there's probably an average level of focus and detail, right? right? Yeah. And at some point, we say, okay, at, beyond this level, it's pathological. Right. Yeah. It, and that has such negative connotations, but no, it, I it, yeah. pathological doesn't isn't intended to be uh, judgmental. It's just meant to say that you're well above average in or under on this attribute. Yes. So we're not meaning to be judgmental, but that's the way it gets taken. Right. So yeah, golly, man, there's just, it's just spawning <laughs> so many ideas and questions. 
Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. The prevalence of mental health issues and human growth and development issues are so widespread that you can't throw a rock in without hitting something, mm-hmm. right, for, for so many of us, uh, myself included. Look, I'm, I've been in long-term therapy. I have my own insecure attachment. I have some other trauma stuff that you know, definitely has left me with a, you know, a few mental wounds yep. that are, are healing and well on the yep. way. So that's partly why I can do the podcast now. Yeah, that qualifies me as, yeah, I'm using the, my personal journey qualifies me. Yeah. Um, no, <laughs> it's part it's of it. It's part of it, though. The professional, yes. ed, professional education. So, but Sarah, so you, you're in this research mm-hmm. journey, mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that really stood out to me is, and I loved it, and I think you were a little like, meh, about it, but you wrote a follow-up book to your dad's book, The Next Millionaire Next Door, and I said, well, what was your big findings? And she said, basically, everything my dad found is still true, and you're like, Right, that's not right. real exciting. And so there was, that's where that yeah. comes from. Yep. But I think from a validity standpoint, mm-hmm. it speaks volumes. Yes. That there's a really is a consistency and a, and a different observer can come to the same conclusion. And in the science world, that's a beautiful right. thing. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely from a, um, you know, to your point or, you know, to the conversation we had earlier, um, if you are in PR and marketing saying that you have the, the same book again or <laughs> the same findings, it wasn't the same book, but um, maybe isn't earth shattering. But I think, you know, for me professionally and personally, it was, you know, I, I was very proud of the work that he had done. And, you know, I think also part of what the the new book was that I really focused on, especially once he passed away and he wasn't able to finish it with me, was to look at some of the archival research that was out there in the fields of, you know, psychology or financial planning or whatever, it might, consumer sciences, those kinds of things, to confirm a lot of the things that he had found originally, right? That, you know, again, this sort of, you know, being frugal and, and focusing on um, a career, you know, not doing what everybody else does, you know, carving your own path, all those things, you know, they were the same, um, whether we were talking about millionaires in 1996 or, you know, in 2016. So, yeah, sometimes, I'm, you know, again, to say, oh, yeah, basically the same, same things. I mean, again, there were some key differences, especially in the millionaire population we studied. So, the average home price had increased. Um, there were a lot more millionaires with graduate degrees, right, compared to 96 mm-hmm. um, to that data set. And so we saw some of those changes. But by and large, the sort of behavioral components were very similar. Which, okay, yeah, interesting. Really, the behavioral components are the underlying drivers behind this, right? So, right. Uh, and I'm sorry, so what is the typical career path of a, of a millionaire next door? 
Yeah. So there are a couple, couple of different ones. So it's not okay. all the same, but, yeah. you know, a small business owner with a few employees, C-level executives, but then, then, so those are two different groups. And then there's the sort of more modest type career paths. So you've got educators, professors, teachers, uh, those that are in sales. So that's kind of a different um, ball game, but, but those are often the, the paths. I mean, there are a lot What's I think kind of interesting about that is that there isn't a single path, um, but th- there are sort of these groups, if you will. Um, you know, again, a C-level executive has a different income level. And so frugal to that family or that household is going to be very different than to, you know, a teacher and maybe a spouse of that, you know, that's making, you know, a combined uh, income of, you know, $80,000 a year. So, but the behavioral components are the same. Well, I think, right, it, the millionaire status is such a um, mm. widely regarded cultural story of financial success. And yet the finance guy in me is like, inflation, baby. Right. A million dollars doesn't mean the same thing it met in 96. Right. And so, and then I, th- I imagine what you're talking about, and you probably get more into the nuance of this in the book, but what you're actually measuring is overall financial success relative to earning history. So like if I'm a household that's done $80,000 of income, but I have a really high net worth relative to income, mm-hmm. have I done just as good of a job as the C-suite executive that's made 400K a year for 30 right. years? But they have to have a lot more net worth to have a, a comparable level of like, whoa. Right. Yes. So it's like it, the the way that it's calculated. And again, this is something that um, my dad came up with years and years ago, but it's this concept of expected net worth given your age and your income, um, mm. sort of subtracted from your actual income. And so then we divided, you know, the sample into different groups and looked at those that were very what we called, or he called, prodigious accumulators of wealth. Those that were, uh-huh. you know, kind of at the top quartile. And then those that were under accumulators of wealth, which often ended up being, you know, kind of the foils within his books and his work of, you know, the, the, and you can, you can think about it. You can also think about decisions that you've made, but the people that are spending in anticipation of being wealthy, and they're often those that are making a whole lot of money and they're spending every dime to keep up with an image or that kind of thing. Um, And that was often the, the, the caricature of someone that was an under accumulator of wealth. And so that's really, you know, again, to your point, a million dollars is not obviously the same in terms of what it's worth today as it was in 96, but it's still sort of a marker, if you will. Um, I think for people just, you know, psychologically, that's a, you know, oh, that's a goal. That's a kind of level. I've reached that level. Um, I think even in, in our, in the sample from 2016, the, the average net worth was, I think it was 3.5 million. So something like that. Median. Mm -hmm. And what's the median age for that net worth? Of yeah, I think it was 3. 61. Um, I'd have to go back and look for sure. But yeah, so again, that makes sense, right? Like it takes it takes time. It's not something that, uh, unfortunately, yes. that happens overnight. So, um, yeah. So this is really, I mean, there's a lot, you know, obviously this is very personal. I read this book a long time ago where my wife and I are on that journey. I think we are. I mean, I, I'm just gonna. We're we are millionaires next door. Like I'll I'll say that. You know, it's 
And it's bec- partly because I read your dad's book mm-hmm. and a gazillion other personal finance sure. books, right? Because I, I wanted to figure this out. And I'm, so I'm grateful for this work. And I feel like I'm at a point where it's like, how do I help more people get there? And we're in about the same age bracket. I think most of the people that listen to this will probably be, you know, in a their 35 to 55 mm-hmm. age range. And so many of us are on that financial journey towards trying to be in the financial, the millionaire next door. And there's some of us, some that are probably listening. They're like just waking up to the reality that mm-hmm. they have a an accumulation problem. They don't. They're not there yet. So I'm trying to tie a few ideas together here. But the expected net worth term really. I th- I, th- I want to offer that as we're t- having this conversation mm-hmm. is to help people, I guess, soften that comparing with the Joneses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, and I'm, I'm curious about this. This is something anecdotally I've observed is what seems to be challenging in the professional class is you, know, you live in a neighborhood and all the houses are about the same value. Mm-hmm. But within that same neighborhood, the distribution of income, like wage could be much wider than what I imagine is if you live in a low-income neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know, the, the housing is about the same price, but the income distribution is not very high. The range, right. Do, yeah. does, that, does that logic track? I don't know if this even fits with anything that you've studied, but as I think about professionals who live in nice neighborhoods and externally everything looks really nice, you really don't know whether that person is making 150k or 300 or 500 like right yeah unless you really do some deep diving mm-hmm. but if you live in a a much more blue collar community perhaps everyone's making between 50 and 70,000 dollars right like it's and that's meaningful in that context but it's well you know i think i I'll, i might challenge that just a little bit because i think that was especially when, when he began studying this for, and again, the, the reason he got into this was because financial institutions were like, tell us where the millionaires are, right? Like, where, who, who, <laughs> right. who are these You're people? You're a marketing guy. Tell us, where, where are they? Where do we find more of them? They're great clients for 100%. us. 100%. And so what he found yeah. was one of those pockets of uh, affluent Americans were living in neighborhoods just like you described. Um, they were, you know, junk right. metal dealers. They were... You know, they they had a small catering business. They they were you know, and they were living a very Spartan lifestyle. And they you know, but their kids were going on to be doctors and and getting higher education. You know, all those kinds of things. So right. it, it it's and it, it is hard. I mean, it's even hard, right? For I, I have you know two teenage <laughs> daughters and and one in middle school and. We have these, thankfully, I think for them, they'll thank us later that we're having these conversations all the time because um, you cannot, you can't judge a book by its cover. I mean, it's absolutely true. And so, you know, we make the the assumptions and not to, you know, go too far into that, that folks that live in those modest, more modest homes or neighborhoods they are that that could definitely that's that's kind of the quintessential millionaire next door but they're very hard to find and so if you again going back to our conversation about survey research a lot of survey research and even what we did for 2016 is looking at zip codes right so i'm looking at zip codes and then looking at blocks and things like that in order to identify these folks and so typically even if you're going to go survey people 
you're not necessarily going to go to those neighborhoods. So you have to do a different sort of sampling process for that and identification process for that. I don't know if I, if that makes sense, but yeah. Yeah, no, I think, well, it does make sense. And I think what it reminds me of, and I feel humbled and just, I mean, I appreciate you pushing back on it because it's like, I walked into one of the oldest scripts, right? Is my own imagined like, Oh, of course the millionaires are in the nice neighborhoods. Like, no, remember Ed, the night, the millionaires like are disproportionately in like, okay. Neighborhoods. They're not necessarily ramshackle places, but they're not, um, you know, in my community, we call them the mini mega mansions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have, right. Those. And yeah. certainly there are millionaires in those communities, mm-hmm. but like your data, your aggregate data says actually more often than not millionaires are living in relatively modest homes. Well, especially those that are self-made. So now we're not talking necessarily yeah, about, you know, someone that received, you know, $5 million from their parents. Those folks might be mm-hmm. in the mini mega mansions because they, you know, they want to keep up. They have the asset base to do right. it. Right. And yeah. again, they didn't work to achieve that wealth necessarily. And so spending it is less of an issue for them. Whereas the person that spent their lifetime building a business, working hard, sacrificing, they're not necessarily going to to spend in that way. So again, everyone's different, but that's kind of the the mindset there. When I wondered, that's something that's so interesting too, is right, that very frugality that helps people get there. Like, do, mm. do these folks also say that they have a high sense of pleasure around their financial life? Or like... Um, yeah. Do you get what I'm like? Like, are they able to enjoy the fact that they they have money and are they're saving it and they're able to use it, or is there a little bit of miserliness mm-hmm. that? Yeah, I, I think it depends. It, certainly, of course, it always depends, right? But depends, even right. with um, in talking with Brad Klontz, right, and his test, the Money Scripts test, where he measures what's called money vigilance, which is kind of that frugality yeah. factor. Individuals that are very high on money vigilance that are high on what we measure in frugality, they tend to also have a really tough time spending that money even in retirement. So if you're working with a client, you know, understanding kind of where they stand on that can be useful because that might be a conversation, especially if there's differences with spouses, as you know, like, hey, we've worked so hard our whole lives and now we're in retirement. It's time to enjoy this. And if there's a, you know, discrepancy there, that can be challenging. But it has been shown, even if you look at the research related to personality, that that can be a challenge for those that are in retirement that still tend to be very frugal. Well, I guess, right, this, and I don't know how much of this is nature versus nurture. Um, either, way, either way, either side yeah. of it, if you've lived your life from a frugality lens, changing that mindset at 65 is unlikely without substantial effort. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right, like the uh, flexibility, the, the neural pathways are just so deep and so strong. Yep. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So this is where I think, right, from a financial therapy perspective, we have to, we start asking those questions about like the value of frugality and, and building and creating financial security and then the limitations mm. of it. And how do we create a little more flexibility in your mindset as you are working towards, because we're not saying like, well, just go out and enjoy yourself and stop worrying about it. Like, which, right. you know, no, no good therapist would do, you know, worth their to their salt, but we may want to help you feel a little more flexibility and ease and pleasure around 
experience doesn't require money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's you know another way that assessment can be really helpful. And and that's what's so exciting about talking with Sarah as we were talking about before the show started is the, these assessments that you're creating and another great um, scientists are creating help us practitioners to know kind of where's the general population fall, where the high you use the top quartile or mm-hmm. the bottom quartile. And sometimes being average is good and sometimes being average is problematic, right? Like that's <laughs> right. another yeah. conundrum. Yeah. Like we don't want to be average financially because being average financially means you're broke. <laughs> At least as I understand the data. Yes, yes, yes. It's a, yeah. So in that case, like it's beneficial to be above average, right. but in other ways, like, so. It's, yeah. You know, I think one of the personality characteristics, and we were talking a little bit about this early on about being agreeable, right. Agreeableness from the big five. Um, that makes for, you know, a wonderful um, relationship builder. And you probably really enjoy working with that client if they are scoring very, very high. Um, But there's a flip side to being high on agreeableness. And it's that you're, you know, setting boundaries can be a challenge socially. Um, It's harder to say no when family members ask you for, you know, gifts or help or whatever it might be, even though that might put you in a financial situation that's not, you know, positive. But, you know, that's one where being average would probably be better, right? But again, (laughs) if you know that about yourself, or if your advisor or your therapist knows that about you, then you can work to anticipate situations where that might come into play and, you know, role play some things like, okay, you know, again, think about a client where, you know, annually, family members are coming to that client asking them for gifts whatever it might be, emergencies, gifts, whatever, you know, role-playing right. with them and helping them understand, okay, you you want to be kind, you want to be helpful, here's some other ways we can do that that won't jeopardize, you know, your financial future, that kind of thing. But, but again, you know, we were talking about whether average can be good, you know, average there is, is probably a good thing. You're not, you know, uncaring, right. but you're also not, you know, being walked all over. I can hear all my all the listeners and myself included in this group because I'm high, high on that agreeableness. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. God bless me if there's a higher <laughs> ranking, right. I could probably get it. That anything less than super agreeableness feels like cold. I know. And yet, like the rest of the population, I mean, this is you know the people are accused of being too tender-hearted. Right. Often, you know, this is that factor. And you know, from an attachment theory, I think probably more anxiously attached mm-hmm. folks are mm-hmm. more on the agreeable side mm-hmm. of the big five. Um. But this, you know, it really raises such a great question. And something I see in my practice with couples so often is people are partnered with someone that has high agreeableness, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which just means they financially accommodate right. yep. their partner. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, the resentment builds in and erupts. Or they'll go passive aggressive on the spending because they don't want to upset the apple cart. So they'll just go and buy the rug and not say anything right. or whatever else. Yep. And so... You know, it's interesting to think about different people groups that get socialized into agreeableness. And, mm-hmm. you know, it seems women on the whole are socialized towards mm-hmm. agreeableness. Um, POCs are on the whole, mm-hmm. can be. But, heck, white guys can be mm-hmm. too. So, mm-hmm. like, it's not, no one has a lock on right. the agreeableness right. attribute. So, as we're kind of going to bring this conversation to close, I mean, I could ask you a gazillion more questions. I'm loving this. I'll have certainly have to have you back as a guest. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. 
Does your research reveal anything about the characteristics or quality of the marriage of millionaires next door? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we don't go too far into that other than asking some, you know, a few questions related to supportive spouse and things like that. So, um, typically, and again, kind of going back to the idea of what jobs millionaires have, right? Mm-hmm. They are in many ways all consuming. So in a lot of cases, the spouse is a stay-at-home, in most cases, mom or parent. Um, right. And so, and most millionaires do say that their spouse was very supportive. And, and then most of them are married or remarried. So, and we know from research that, you know, married couples tend to have, you know, higher net worths often than their uh, single counterparts. So there is some... Um, again, you can think about uh, someone that has a very stressful, you know, business that they're trying to run. And um, if you have a partner that's supportive of that and then takes care of everything else at home, it makes, you know, doing that job a lot easier. Um, That's not to say that that's the only way it can happen, but it's certainly the case that we see in the data that that's typically the way it happens. Um, and, And, you know, for, we can understand why. Um, but again, there's different models and there are different yeah. ways that people run their lives. So. Right. And I mean, I think, I mean, I think I'm sorry, my brain's thinking about the confidence intervals and mm-hmm. like all that. We're, we don't need to go that far off that nerdy. I mean, not my statistic book. Cause yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For, for, yeah. Sorry for all the non-data nerds that are listening, but yeah, I mean, most of these findings, right, are high likelihoods. Sure. Mm-hmm. Generalizable, but not, you know, of course there's exceptions because people are going to say, well, there's, yeah, but I know this person this way. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. But the group on the mm-hmm. whole say, I felt supported by my mm-hmm. spouse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? right. So that's a really big thing. And that's, you know, so much of my energy around healthy love and money is helping couples get to that place where they feel and experience mm-hmm. that because, and this is where it's nice to talk to a data scientist that says, yeah, the data actually supports that that helps. Mm-hmm. And I think most people intuitively would say, that's not really that surprising. Exactly. Like, seems kind of obvious. <laughs> Again, right? not, no PR there, right? Yeah. yeah not yeah. really that surprising. Right. That, like, if you have a supportive spouse, you're more likely to be a millionaire and doing better financially. Right. It doesn't take a But confirming those understandings, mm-hmm. I think, is very validating and a reminder of why it's so important to have um, healthy relationships, be working on fostering that and getting the help that you need. Yeah. Well, I, I, just to add on to that too, I think, and you know, instead of sort of taking away, and we do this a lot and when we're talking with financial planners is instead of taking away kind of this fact that, okay, millionaires look like this and they have this kind of, you know, home life or situation or relationship with their spouse, instead taking away you know, how can I make sure in my household that we're supportive of one another, even though we both work and we both have these goals? Like the, the concept is support and and taking that away instead of taking away, oh, I don't, I don't look like this. I don't, I don't, you know, oh, it's only, you know, the majority of millionaires are men. Well, let's not, let's take that away and let's look at what, what it took to get them there and see how we can apply that to our own lives. So that's one thing I would just say, thinking about that related to couples. Yeah, that's huge. So Sarah's, you know, people are listening to this. There'll probably be some financial planners that are listening to this. So if financial planners are listening, 
what do they need to know about data points? Mm. So if you're not a financial planner, this probably doesn't feel relevant. Just, you know, go ahead and fast forward 30 seconds or a minute. Yeah. For the financial planners that are listening, data points, plug it, promote it. What, tell us. So we give you tools to understand your client's money mindset in, in very kind of straightforward ways that make sense to your client, that'll make sense to you. And you can use those to have conversations with them, right? Where you explore some of the things that we've talked about here today. And you can also compare couples. So you know right away where there might be some discrepancies between you know, a couple's attitudes about budgeting and their attitude about investing and their future life together and that kind of thing. So that's that's what we do um, for financial planners. And then we have sort of an analytic side too for, you know, larger firms and things like that. That's great. And, and I think, you know, if you're not a financial planner and you did listen to this, one of the things that you may be wanting to ask yourself is, why isn't my financial planner doing these assessments mm-hmm. if they're not already mm-hmm. doing it? Mm-hmm. Is the field of financial planning is progressing and it's moving more and more into mm-hmm. psychology and understanding human psychology to to benefit you and make sure that you're moving towards, uh, I'm going to use this term that you said earlier, expected net worth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's your number? And like that, the goal of financial planner is your ultimate financial well-being and outcome. Mm-hmm. Like if they're not helping you move towards that, they're not doing their job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It's that simple. Yeah. Like their job is to help your life turn out better than it would if you were left to your right. own devices. Right. right. So they better know you. They better know who you are. Yeah. Are. yeah. That's yeah. right. Because if they speaking to that predictability piece, mm-hmm. because we know there's predictable parts of our own humanness mm-hmm. that will be a thorn in our side for a lack mm-hmm. of better image mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Right. Like our Achilles heel. And, and I know in my own marriage, right. Some of my own, even though I'm so highly educated, my agreeableness, we'll just use that factor for right now. I haven't been the significant financial contributor to my family. Maybe it would be different if my wife wasn't the breadwinner mm-hmm. and highly educated dentist, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe I would have stayed on that path more. And it's shifting. So it's, these things are complex and dynamic, but I definitely know my agreeableness has gotten me in trouble and slowed me down from mm-hmm. going after some of the things mm-hmm. that I want, especially from a financial perspective, because I'm afraid to ask mm-hmm. for the money. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, so, so that's big. I I so appreciate the conversation, the opportunity to talk with you. And I'm just going to put it on there. Will you come back and be a guest again in the future? Absolutely. This is great. Thank you so much. And just, yeah, thank you for, you know, what you're doing in this field. I just, I appreciate it. You know, I'm, I'm a measurement person. That's, that's the lane that I swim in and, um, you know, the work that you do to help clients is amazing. So thank you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, it it does take multiple people all pulling yeah. together, right? And like, I want to be able to apply the data mm-hmm. and help help it inform what I'm doing with my clients. So, uh, keep up your great work you. as well, and uh, so many more good conversations to come. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I invite you now to stop for five or ten minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money. 
at 